Oh, lovely to be with you guys this morning. And uh, hopefully to build something of the ways of the King into our hearts. Father, just as we dive in together into your scriptures, I pray that you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see, God. To hear what it is you want us to hear. And Lord, that you would move our hearts this morning to that place that we'd be found before you, right where you want us to be, God. Do it, Lord. Do it in Jesus' name. Do it by the power of your word, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Father. Amen. Thank you. I can just carry on worshiping. It's like lovely. One of the wonderful things, well, let me just first say it is wonderful to be here. And wonderful to have my wifey with me. Uh, she's starting to travel again with me, which is uh, really, really is wonderful. I feel like for so long I've been running on my own as we travel the nations, or I travel the nations, and uh, it's just wonderful to have her by my side again. One of the amazing things that God has done for us here is this. And I remember years ago when we got our first building, we've got many now across all over the place, but I remember the first one being so excited when we finished it because kind of like we'd fought so hard to get to that place, you know, we'd given so much to get to that place. But something happened as I was leading through that process. We moved in and people started streaming in even more. We were always growing quickly, but it kind of accelerated. More and more people coming in. And it wasn't long that I realized, oh my goodness, we need to be careful because actually sometimes in the early days it came to us because we had something of the word, something of the way of the Lord that was attractive. But now people were coming to us because we had a killer building and we actually looked like we were a decent church, which is all a con. <laughs> and, and I realized, oh my goodness, we have to work. God's bringing people, but we have to rework their values to understand the ways of the king. Because when you come to the Lord, there is a sense of the old dies and the new comes. But people were coming often even from other churches. And some of them had you know, certain aspects of an understanding of who God is and how he works, but some of them were really deficient in some areas. And so we had to dig in and try and you know, rework the foundations of how people saw themselves and how they saw God. And this morning, I, I really felt to, to pick up something that I preached, I think about seven years ago, maybe eight years ago, um, on a concept that I think is going to be vital for each of us to understand. And even the old Josh Jenners, guys that have been just like Jono and those guys, we need to remember the fullness of God's counsel. We need to remember the fullness of what God says to us so that we can not drift, but remain in what God has for us. And so um, this subject is, you know, Paul writes the, I think it is to the, who was it to? He says, you need meat, you need milk, not solid food. I've forgotten who it was now. Who was it? I can't even remember. I hit the total blank. I, th I think, sorry, I think it's actually the letter to the Hebrews. So it's not Paul. And he says this, uh, but this time you should eat meat. I've got to go back and teach you milk. I've got to give you basic stuff. This teach is not milk. It's meat. In other words, it's going to be hard for some of us to process. And I want to put the, at, the, at the start, I want to say, if you're struggling at the end of this preach, please go speak to your leaders. Because the first time you eat meat, sometimes your stomach is like, Ooh. yeah, I don't know how to process that. And it can make you feel a little bit ill. I'm hoping no one feels ill at the end of this preach. I'm hoping you all are going, that was an amazing steak. I didn't know a steak would taste like that. But 
just putting it out there. Because I want to actually talk about a subject that is hardly ever spoken of in the Christian church in our generation. And yet it was a vital part of the Christianity of the first century. And it's this concept of us being slaves to God or slaves of God. Now, that concept already feels like, what? And so let's, let's dig into this. And because I am going where few people dare to go, I need to root this well in the Bible. So it's going to start off technical. And at some point, all those technical points, I've got to kind of show you well enough that you actually see this. Not because I say it, but because you yourself see it in the Bible. And then once we see that as a foundation, we can then start to bring application. And so this preach will probably feel you're going you're gonna to have a brain pain halfway through. But if you follow me through this, you will see aspects of your salvation and what God plans to do that will radically transform your life. And that's the point, that you'd be radically transformed through the teaching of the Word of God. So there's many concepts that the Bible gives us about God yeah, and our relationship to Him. You know, He's a Father, we're children, we're co-heirs. There's all these different, act, you know, we His body, members of His body joined together. And those are often spoken about, especially the one being sons and and. But this one is hardly ever spoken about. I think I'm the only guy I've ever actually heard teach on the subject. Now that I say that, I'm thinking on the run here. Have you ever heard anyone else outside of Josh Jim? I haven't either. So I've got to read this well. So in Romans 6.22, it says this. Let's put it up on the board. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God... The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. It's quite interesting. Now that you've been set free from sin, and remember, the language here is set free. So already you're starting to have this picture we're going to dig into, that sin actually has a way of making you its slave. And so actually, here's the reality. On the earth, everyone is a slave. You might not realize it, but as you dig in, hopefully the penny will drop. We are all slaves to something. We're either slaves to sin or we slaves to God. And so here the writer says, Paul says, so you've been set free from being slaves to sin. Sin doesn't rule me anymore because I'm now in Jesus. But now I've become a slave to God. <laughs> and the language, this is, I think almost every Bible translation, this is the NIV, it's a well-known translation, uses the word slave. So, <laughs> and I wonder when last did we sing a worship song? where we sang about him being our master, Lord, and us being his slaves. When else did we teach these things? And, and we need to, because I think one of the things we've got to do is we've got to hold all the truths of the Bible in proper tension. Now, sonship is something that all of us will have heard spoken of. We're sons of God, we've adopted into his family, and, and we, 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 we're special, we loved, we beloved, and those are all true. But if we don't have every aspect of what God says, we actually miss a vital part of what our salvation actually is. And so the concept of sons, to give you an idea of how, just to give you a comparison, you've heard sons a lot, slaves very little. The concept of sons, well, we call sons 16 times in the Bible, in the New Testament. Children 15 times, and God's called our father 50 times. So in total, the concept of sonship and father, uh, our father, not Jesus' father, our father, is 98 times. The concept of I'm part of his family. How much do you think slavery is mentioned in the New Testament? The word for slave, and we'll look at that just now, is doulos. It's used 127 times. And the, the concept of Lord is karios in Greek. And, the, and karios 
always means, if you go look at any, any decent commentator will pick up on this. This is not just my revelation. This is not like it could mean. This is like what karyos means according to every Greek scholar. Not what Andrew said because he went and looked at the Bible, what the Greek could mean. This is what karyos means. It means the master of a slave. And that's used 680 times about God in his relationship to us. Which gives us a total of 807 times slaves and master and 98 times son and father. Eight times more the weight is on this than it is on this. Could that maybe be the reason why Christianity is so nominal and so weak in our generation? Because we haven't properly understood what the salvation is that God's bringing us into. Now, one of the key reasons why we often miss this concept of slave is, is because often our Bible translates the word slave, not always. I mean, you saw that one wasn't, and that was a pretty clear example. But one of the challenges with the Bible is guys are trying to translate it for us in a way that we can understand and the concept of slave is not a cool concept. I mean, slavery is like, in slavery is like pretty much the drive of our generation. And so a lot, and we'll dig into this. And so the word has a lot of baggage. And so what happens then is people are, and Bible, Bible, you know, as they translate the Bible for us into our language, they often struggle because they think, what are people going to think if we just say it as is? Because they don't have the full context of the whole counsel of God. And so that word is an offensive word. Would you agree? It is an offensive word. It feels terrible. Uh, and so the ESV, how many know the ESV Bible? It's one of the better Bibles. I saw a video recent, or well, I saw it a few years ago, where the committee who, who were translating the ESV from obviously Hebrew and Greek into English, um, and they were talking about this word, doulos, slavery, slave. And, and, and in the, you can actually Google it. You'll, you'll actually see them talking about this. They actually speak about, we don't know if we can actually use this word like it is used in the Bible because it's got such a bad connotation. People are actually going to get stuck. And so they decided to use the word servant because it's a much softer word. And in our culture, it's, it's less offensive. And so in doing that, they said, even though we know it means slave, we're going to call it servant unless it's clear that we can't. So, for example, uh, there's a slave that Paul writes about to his owner, Philemon and Onesimus, and, and it's clearly a slave, so there we will keep the concept of slave. And so what I need to do is something that I tell you, if someone does this, ignore them, and I'm about to break my own rule. Because every, uh, most bad doctrine comes like this. The Bible translates this word like this, but let me tell you what actually the Greek means, and most guys that say that don't know anything about Greek and, and, and make up their own stuff. So normally, what I'm about to do, you should ignore. So I've got to make a very good case as to why doulos means slave, always, and never servant. Do you get, because I'm going against some, some proper Greek scholars that know Greek a lot better than I do. Okay. So, I mentioned the ESV committee talking about this, and slavery, again, is a terrible thing. The Bible is actually quite against a certain kind of slavery. There was a good kind of slavery in the Bible and a bad kind of slavery. And so in Exodus 21, 16, we see anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he's caught must be put to death. Yeah, if someone's trading people, he's got to die. In the New Testament, Timothy, 
is, is in 1 Timothy 1.10, he talks about slave traders, and slave traders are not going to go to heaven. So, so God doesn't like this concept of slavery that the world does, okay? But then he uses his own concept himself, and he uses slavery, so it feels like a bit of a contradiction, like, and so we've got to grapple with why, why, what is this? And maybe to understand in Israel, where slavery initially came from, slavery was a very redemptive thing. Remember, there was, there was no government carrying, you know, pensions or whatever. If, so if someone mismanaged, Werner, why don't you come out? You can be my slave. Werner's been given an allotment of property, and God says, as he divides Israel, that's your allotment. It's for you and your children and their children and children. It's sacred. But sometimes Werner mismanages that. He makes bad decisions. Life happens. And he comes to the place that he actually can't afford to live. He's losing everything. Children are starving, and he's starving. So what would happen then is actually God wanted to keep his inheritance for his children, that his mistakes wouldn't mess up his... So what God would say is this, okay, somebody can buy him and his land into slavery. He's not being traded by somebody else. He's just going to die of starvation, and his kids will too, if we don't rescue him. And so I might be another Jew or Israeli, and I might say, okay, I will buy you because I think your land has got potential. It's land that God gave you. And I'm going to help you how to redeem this land. And so for, for a period of time, you bec- I, 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 I pay off your debts by buying you. And then your land is my land for a period of time. And you are mine. And, and the Bible is very clear. I've got to treat you like a human being. I've got to treat your family well. I, I can't abuse you because you're made in the image of God. This is how the Israelis would have practiced this. But after a time, as I'm working the land, I've got to train you how to do it. And every seven years, once I've paid back what I've done here, and, and now the land is working, and I've got it working because I obviously do know what I'm doing because I can afford to buy your land. I'm going to give it back to you. And I'm giving you your freedom. And so the whole concept was redemptive. The whole concept was if we don't do this, you're going to starve and your children will starve and you will, they will lose any hope of an inheritance. Does that make sense? So this concept is actually a concept that comes into us in the New Testament. Because the Bible says that we are slaves to sin, and sin destroys and kills us. How many of you found you messed up your life before you came to Jesus? And you couldn't fix yourself, could you? You couldn't make right. You couldn't just become a better person and be what God wanted you to be. So when Jesus buys you into slavery, he becomes your master, or God becomes your master, and you become his slave. And he keeps you for a period of time as his slave. But the point of it is, the Bible says, if we endure with him, we will also, Timothy says, reign with him. And when do we reign with him? Our slavery ends when he returns. And then we are seated with the throne and we are ruling and reigning with him. This is our time where as the slaves of God, we are learning the ways of the master directly under his care. We don't own anything anymore because we're going to mess it up. He owns everything, and as we listen to him and walk with him and do the things he tells us to do, we learn the ways of the master until we die, and because we endured, he says, now that you've come through this life, these 70 years or whatever it is that you've lived, now I'm going to seat you with me on my throne, and I'm going to let you rule and reign. Does that make sense? (laughs) 
So slavery to the Jew wasn't a terrible thing. It was a beautiful thing. And there were rules about how the slave would be treated as a human being. So slavery, I say that because that gives us a backdrop. Then we've got to look at the concept of servant. And, and I have a problem with the Bible translating servant. I don't like people messing with the Bible full stop. I mean, one of the things the new NIV does, I hate it. I love the old NIV, 84 version. It was, I think it was a great translation. Then the new NIV, actually they did the TNIV. The TNIV said, whoa, times have changed. We've got to fight for women's rights, etc. So let's change the language of the Bible and make it more gender neutral. And then that was so badly done, everyone went, that's heresy. So then they said, okay, okay, we'll tone it down a bit. And they did the 2011 NIV. And I think the 2011 NIV is a bad translation. It changes the meaning of the text. You just got to look at the NASB or the ESV who are good translators, or even the King James and the New King James, and you'll see there's a big difference in a lot of places. So if you've got a 2011, go burn it. No, <laughs> now, I, I, I'm teasing. You don't have to burn it. There's still aspects of that that are the Word of God, but I am concerned when people change the Bible and its obvious, clear meaning. Some of you have the NIV... And you can't get the 84 anymore. The 84 was a beautiful version. Anyway. <laughs> I don't even come with the passion. Or even the message. Because those aren't translations. Those are at best commentaries on the Bible. Somebody's translating. I mean, those are just terrible translations. There are good translations. The NASB. The ESV. King James, New King James, they are great translations. And now the old NRV, and there's a few others that are good, but I'm just putting it out there. Okay. I don't want to go there. But I've got a problem with, with changing the Bible. That's where I was going. Servant and slave is vastly different. According to the Encarta Dictionary, a servant is an employee who serves somebody else, especially as an employee hired to do household tasks or be a personal attendant to somebody else. In other words, an, a servant is independent. Okay, I'll work for you, but then I want some remuneration. I'll, I, I, I'm free. I'm actually, I'm not yours. I'm mine. But I'll do some work for you. I'll serve you in some way. I'll, I'll, I'll meet some need that you have in your company or in your home. But I'm doing it on my terms. And if you pay me the right amount, I'll agree. And I'll say, okay, I'll do that then. And no, I actually don't want to do that. You keep your pay. I don't want to do that. Slavery, on the other hand, is very different. Because a slave is owned. He, he has no choice in the matter. He is regarded as the property of another. And you can't leave until, in this case, you're seven years up. And when the Bible is written, please understand, it uses the word slave a lot. And slavery was a very common thing. One out of two people in the Roman world were slaves. Rome had ruled the world and people from all over the nations. So a lot of the early Christians were actually slaves. The Bible even uses that language when it talks about in salvation. There's no longer slave or free. You had slaves and slave masters in the same churches. Now, okay, so let's look at some words. And one of the things is there are a lot of words that the Bible could have used for servant. And I'll give you some of them quickly. And then I'll show you why that doulos always means slave. And I'm going to back this up with my big hitters. Not me. Not my interpretation. Because I wouldn't trust that. Pais is one of the Greek words for servant in Matthew 28. 
uh, Matthew 8, verse 6. This is used 24 times in the Bible. Pais. So I'm just wanting to show you that there are words for servants. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. That word is pious. It literally means uh, a dependent child or a servant. Padiska, Matthew 26, 69, 12 times in the Bible this is used. Peter's sitting outside. And remember, a servant girl came and says, weren't you with Jesus? She's not a slave. She's a servant girl. She is doing work for somebody and getting paid for it. She's not a slave. The word thereupon means servant. And in Hebrews 3 verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. So all I'm trying to show you now is there were words that could have been used. And they were used sometimes. But doulos is used the most. And doulos is the one we're going to dig into. Diakonos. Where we get the concept? Deacon. And it was a secular concept that they brought into the church. It's used 29 times. In Matthew 20 verse 26, Jesus said, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become the greatest among you must be your diakonos, servant-heartedness. So we see their words for servanthood. So why the word doulos and what exactly does the word doulos mean? So doulos is used 150 times. And I mentioned earlier, Enosimus Philemon, if you're taking notes, 15.6. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave. Every translation says that but better as a slave, as a dear brother. But now I'm going to dig into a time when the Bible changes the word, because all the Bible say the same thing. And then we're going to look at it. So in Romans 1 verse 1, Paul writes to the church. It's a leader in the church, and he says, Paul, the NIV says, a servant, that word is doulos. So I'm going to say that that's a bad translation. I'm going to prove it to you now. Called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. That word, you can go check it out. It's doulos. So now I'm going to dig into the big hitters. The theological dictionary of the New Testament, and we're going to look at it together. I'm quoting from it. This is, these are the definitive works. These are the foundational works. And I'm quoting some of the top scholars in the world. A lot of commentaries, commentaries you lead will build off of these men that we're looking at. These are, the, these are the big hitters. All right. Ironically, the Greek language is at least half a dozen words. I've just given you some of them. That can mean servant. But the word doulos is not one of them. Whenever it is used, both in the New Testament and in secular Greek literature, it always and only means slave. The meaning is so unequivocal and self-contained that it is superfluous to give examples of their individual terms or to trace the history of the group. The emphasis is always on serving as a slave. Hence, we have a service which is not a matter of choice for the one who renders it which he has to perform, whether he likes it or not, because he is subject as a slave to an alien will, to the will of his owner. The term stresses a slave's dependence upon his Lord. They're making it very clear. I'll give you one more quickly. E.J. Goodspeed is professor of Greek at the University of Chicago in 1923 to 1937. He's regarded as a Greek genius and the pioneer in lexicography of the Greek language. When you go to lexicons, he's the guy that came up with the concept. Okay, he's not Mickey Mouse. Doulos, he says, there is no need to trace the history of this word. There's no need to discuss the meaning of this word. It has never meant anything in any usage but slave. It's not debatable. The BAGD, the Bauer, Amt, Ginrich, and Danke, 
which is regarded as one of the, the, the literally, it is like the gold standard. Basically says this, it undisputably means slave. And I could go on and on and on. I could just, you get it. This is not Andrew. This is the greatest Greek minds translating the word, and they are not messing around. We're not saying it could, maybe, but it unequivocally means the same thing. So now we, we come back to this, Paul. And Paul, and, 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 and some translations do translate it as a slave. Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul is servant. The King James Version says servant. The ASV says servant. The NIV says servant. And even the ESV says servant. But normally they will actually at the bottom of a footnote. Could mean slave. Or, 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 or mean slave, they might, depending on how they do it. Then, and I need to say this, because then there's another concept that comes in. Guys say, whoa, okay, so we can't say slave, but it is slave. So how do we translate this word in a way that's not offensive? And so in the Old Testament, there was this thing where if you were Verna, come stand here again, and after seven years, I come and I say to you, Verna, I want to set you free. It's my seven years is up, I've, I've redeemed your farm, I've redeemed your land, I'm going to set you free. And Verna looks at me and says, you know what? I don't know if I can do this without you. I don't know if I, I, I think I'm going to get back in that same hole. So I want to stay as your slave. Which gives you an idea that slavery wasn't that bad for them. And then what he would do is he would get an oil and he would go to the doorpost of his house and we would nail his ear, bang. And that mark in his ear would be a sign that he is a voluntary slave, a bond slave. And that was in the, it was actually in the Old Testament, that was something that actually happened in Israel. So he could then be a, but once he's done that, he's no longer a servant, he's back as a slave, but he's a slave by choice. You got that. And so in some ways, thank you, in some ways we all slave by choice to Jesus. Because you can remain in sin and then sin is your master, or you can choose to turn to Christ and say, so I'll be your slave, pierce my ear, and I'm, your, I'm yours. So the, some translations say, let's, let's use the word bond servant or bond slave because it kind of helps us to, there is a measure of choice. And so some translations translate Paul a bond servant or a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the NASB, the New King James Version, the Derby Version, and the Weymouth New Testament. The problem is, at the time of writing, the concept of bond servanthood had fallen away. There were no such thing as bond servants anymore. So you, 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 the, you understand why they did it. You, you get why they did it. They're trying to help us as Bible readers who don't understand the context go, yeah, well, it is sort of a free thing. I give myself. But they do miss something of Roman slavery where this concept was now written into and then some Bibles do a good job on this one, and they actually just call it slave. So the Holman's Christian Standard Bible, Paul is slave. The Jubilee Bible, the Lexham English Bible, the Common English Bible, the NET, the NAB, the Goodspeed, the West's Bible, the New Living Translation, J. Adams' Translation. Funny enough, the message, which I don't like, actually uses the word slavia, which is like, whoo-hoo, finally the message is something, right? And the New Testament recovery version, which is watched in the knee group, translated this slave. So there are a lot of Bibles that do try and remain true to the text, but they're not your common Bibles. Did you notice how many of those? Have I made my point here? All right. The Holy Spirit chose the word slave. 
in a world that understood slavery. So we've got to grapple with this. And what does that mean for us? If I am Christ's slave, I've been set free from sin. What does that mean for my Christianity? How does that work out in everyday life? 1 Corinthians 7, and 23 says this. And this they would probably translate slave because it's pretty clear. For the one who was a slave when he was called, so in other words, there's actual slaves that have now been called, and they're slaves. They're physical slaves. They, they, they belong to somebody else. They were captured in war or something else, and I'm a slave. For the one who was a slave when he was called by the Lord. So I'm a slave to this man, but now I believe in Jesus. Is the Lord's freedman. So actually, in a sense, while I'm his slave, the Lord has set me free in my heart. But he who is a free man when he was called, I'm not a slave to anyone, is Christ's slave. How many of you were slaves when you were called? To a man, I mean. So the freedmen, that's us, when we got saved, we became Christ's slave. And in some ways, the writer here, Paul, is trying to help the church understand that there is equality. Those that were free mustn't look down at the slaves in the church and think, well, you're not even human, which is how Roman law treated them. Actually, you're a human being, and we have an equal footing before God. Did you think of yourself as a slave to God? And let's look at what that means. Because he says in verse 24, for you were, consider yourself as Christ, for you were bought at a price. And then try not to become a slave of men, because if you're a slave of men, you're going to battle to serve Christ properly, because this man is going to be your Lord. So try and stay free if you're free. But you were bought at a price. And that word bought is slave talk. Can you remember the, you'd go to the slave market and would stand and the masters would walk through and yeah, check your muscles and decide, are oh, you going to help my household? And then they would buy you if they felt that you were valuable. Now the Bible tells us that we were bought. And again, we've got to put this at a price and the price was steep. What was the price for purchasing you and me? The God used gold. The price he paid was his own life, his own blood. And so now we start to see how the Lord redeems his concept for us. Because in a sense, the Bible tells us that anyone who sins, in, in John 8, 34, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. So I, I became a Christian at 20 years of age, and what that looks like was this. Growing up, um, I remember... I remember some friends coming to our boarding school. I was at boarding school, and, and they brought up pornography magazines. We couldn't get them in, the, in South Africa. Those were the good old days. But every now and again, someone's dad would smuggle them in from overseas. I'm at boarding school, and I remember for the first time, I think I was probably in standard six. I don't know what age there was, grade eight. And one of, my, one of the guys in the dormitory pulled out this magazine. And I remember looking at that magazine at that age, and something was awakened in me. Lust was awakened in me. And that lust started to, in some ways, rule me. I found it was really hard to live free from that once that door was open. It was like somehow that thing, that sin caught a hold of me. And then every time, and this is a problem for young girls, that's why you've got to be very careful if you're a father of a girl and I'm a father of a girl. Basically, young boys, to be honest, 
demands are sewers. Most of the time. They're fighting hard. Their hormones are kicking. And every young man who's here will know, at some point, the fight for sexual purity. And if he gives in to his sin, his own lust, that thing grows and grows stronger and stronger and stronger. All of them, until eventually he's bound by what he's looking at. He's bound by what he's doing. Now, how's about hatred? Or fear? All those things start to lord it over us, and they become our masters. We find, I can't break free from anxiety. I can't break, and these things are now lording it over us. We become a slave to those things. And you can say to the person, sort yourself out all you want to. It's not that easy. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin, Jesus said. Which means, around us, there's slavery everywhere. There's no one who's not a slave. You could be a slave to money. You serve it with your whole life. You'll sacrifice your family. You'll sacrifice your health. You'll sacrifice all that you have. And then you become a slave to that thing. Does this make sense? So Jesus comes and he sees us bound by terrible slave masters. Sin is a terrible master. And he loves us. And he realizes the only way that he can save us is to pay the price and what is the price for the slave to set the slave free? Well, the slave has broken the eternal law of God. The slave, actually, the, the price is life. Life for a life. And so what God does is actually in mercy, and I remember me at 20 years of age coming into a church, drug addict, I was sexually immoral, I was swearing, I was you know, doing drugs and doing all sorts of stuff. And I remember coming to church, standing there, and... God had mercy on me. And he, Jesus, paid the price for me. And the price for me was this blood, his own blood. He died on a cross in my place. And in dying on the cross in my place, he paid my price. You were bought, the Bible says. The price is blood. And God shed his life, his blood on the cross to redeem me from my slave masters that were destroying me and breaking me and bringing me into his family, out of that slavery into becoming a member of his household. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be born again. I, I, I come to God. I believe in him. I believe in what he's done. And he brings me into his family and, um, and bars me. And, and in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, we read, well, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. And that word redeem is the word used for, for, for redeeming a slave on the market. Um, so with things such as silver or gold from the empty way of life handed down to you from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You get that? And here's what Jesus did, and I want you to see this. Remember, the price, he has to equal the price of what it's going to cost to fix me. And it's my life he's got to save. So it's life for a life. So in Philippians 2 verse 7, the Bible tells us, Jesus made himself nothing. This is how he'd redeem us. Taking the very nature of a doulos, not a servant, 
taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness, Christ became a slave and then died as a slave to redeem me from slavery to sin so that I could be now taken out of that and adopted into the family of God and be called a son, yes, be called a member of his body, yes, but also to belong to him, my master. Are you with me? So when Paul says, and I love this, when Paul says, Paul, in Romans 1.1, a slave of Jesus Christ, it's a beautiful boast, actually, because he's not boasting about what he is, he's boasting about whose he is. I was a slave to sin, but now I'm his slave, and he's a good master. He seats me at his table. He calls me son. He's he's redeemed me from the curse that I was under, and he set me free. All right. So then what does that mean for us? And I'm going to jump to, I'm going to skip my quote and jump to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. You are not your own. You were bought, the next line says, at a price. Here's what it means to be Christian. I I don't own me anymore. My life is not mine. When I bowed my knee to Jesus and said, Lord, come into my life, forgive me of my sin. He became my Savior and He became my Lord. My curios. And I yielded my life and I said, I will no longer live for me, God. I live for my master. I do what my master wants. I won't live where I want to live. I won't do what I want to do. I listen to my master. Okay. So if you're a Christian properly, You are not your own. You don't belong to you. Interesting, in slavery, and I actually was going to give a quote. Maybe I should quote, I'm going to quote this quote. Rabbi, have you got this quote? I don't think I gave it to you. Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, chief rabbi of the USA, spiritual leader of modern Jewish orthodoxy for the last half of the last century. So he's a Jewish rabbi. Not a Christian, but a solid Jewish rabbi. He said this. To be a slave of God involves more than merely being his servant. Servants retain their independent status. And I think some of us think that's what Christianity is. They have only specific duties and limited responsibilities. Slaves, on the other hand, have no rights with respect to their owners because they are deemed the property of the latter. Jewish law operates on the principle that whatever a slave acquires automatically belongs to the owner. You got that? So that means I was bought and I belong to Jesus. I remember realizing it as a young Christian. I don't know how I realized it because it wasn't taught much. But that I wasn't my own. And I remember asking the Lord initially. I remember being there was, Lord, should I get married? Should I get married, Lord? Lord, should I have children, Lord? Lord, where do you want me to live? If I lived where I wanted to live, I'd be out of South Africa already. But my life is not my own. I stay where the master told me to stay. I don't. I've had opportunities to go all over beautiful places. I cannot. I'm bound to my master. I cannot just decide to go here, there, and do this, that, and the next thing. Because I'm his. I'm not my own. I was bought at a price. 
And the master says in, in um, again, maybe Luke 17, 7 to 10, Jesus is actually talking and he says, and he uses the word doulos, so we know it says servant, but it means slave. Which of you, ha- oh, okay, here we go. NASB actually uses slave here. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he's coming from the field? So imagine this. He's talking about the master and the slave. Which of you has this, you know, the, the slave's been out there working all day and he comes in from the field and he's tired. Which would say, come immediately and sit down to eat. Okay? Will he not say to him, to the slave who's been working all day, prepare something for me to eat. (laughs) And clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterwards, you may eat and you may drink. In other words, the slave can't come back from a hard day and say, I've had such a rough day, God. Feed me. Well, I'm going to eat at your table. The slave, at the end of a hard day, comes to the master and says, Master, I'm here to serve you. So before I feed myself or worry about myself or my things, I worry about your things because I belong to you. So I'm going to feed you. I'm going to feed your house. And after I feed your house, then I can look after myself. And that's kind of what Jesus says to us in Matthew 6.33. He says, Seek ye. First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So the priority of every true believer is this. The priority of my life is the kingdom of God. And after I've looked after his house, then I'll worry about my own. So which of you here live that way? Or do you consider your own house first? I was saying recently to the guys, where's my wife? She was here. Come stand here. Let me illustrate this. And we've lived like this since... Before we met each other, actually. I love her, and she's, but she's not my priority. Nor is my daughter my priority. Because we're slaves. We belong to the master. And the first thing we always put as a family is his house and his things. We listen to his commands. Now, the master's good, and he says to me, I must love her as he's loved me. So I'm not going to neglect her, but she's not my priority. My daughter needs to grow up knowing that while we love her and she's precious to us, the master's house is our priority, not us. Her sport, her life, her everything is for the master's house. And if it gets in the way, it dies. Because we are his, we're not our own. We don't belong to us. He's a good master and he's given us love and he's put us together as a family and I love her and she loves me and he's kind and he gives us time for each other and, and he teaches me how to love her and her how to, how to love me but she's not the priority and I'm not the priority. He's the priority. And if anything else becomes a priority, it becomes idolatrous. It goes so far, I mentioned earlier, I even asked God, should I get married? Do you know that that's actually in the Bible? What do you mean? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.29, and this is, catch the gist of what he's saying here. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as though they had none. That's the Bible. What's he saying? Remember, if I neglect my wife, I'm not fit to lead in the house of God. If my children are rebellious because I haven't loved them through, I'm not fit to lead in the house of God. But my priority is not them. I live as though I don't have them. Did you see? That's black and white. 
I'll give you a bit more because some of you are thinking he's got to take that out of context. Surely. Doesn't the Bible say if a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing? Yes, he does. And I found a wife. But I, I found a wife when the master said yes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 35, I'm saying this for your own good. Because he says, when you get a wife, she's, she's her maintenance. She's her maintenance. And, and let me be honest, wife, when you find a husband, he's even more maintenance. I'll never forget when we were in Israel a few years ago, and we, we went to the place where, um, where was it? At the place where, where, the, the, where the ark was kept before it moved the cross. And um, the, the mother of Samuel, what was her name? Hannah. Hannah's crying out to God. I want a child, I want a child. And finally, you know, her husband comes to her and she's crying all the time. And he's like, why are you crying all the time? And she says, I want a child. And he says, but aren't I like 10 children? And I thought, true, when you marry a man, it's like 10 children. You've got to look after right there. In the Bible, I'm like 10 children. It's a lot of work. And so Paul says, and notice the, the motive here. It's a lot of work. And so Paul says, I'm saying this thing about marriage for your own good. Not to restrict you. I'm not saying you can't get married. But I want you to get your priorities right. That you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. My devotion is to the Lord. To seek His house. How many children should I have, Lord? Because I'm yours. All that I have is yours. This is what it means to be in his household. Am I making sense? <laughs> we, we obey always what the master says. It's not like a debate. The master speaks and we listen. We don't own anything. Did you know that? In Acts 4.32... Acts 4.30, you don't own anything. You think you've got your car? No. It belongs to the master because the slave owns nothing except that which the master lets him use. Your house is not yours. Your car is not yours. Your, your wallet is not yours. Everything you have belongs to him because you're his slave. And in Acts 4.32, all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything. Who's the Lord of your wallet? Now, the amazing thing is this, and I need to say this. Our master is a good master. You can be a slave to sin, and you can think you're free, but your life will suck. I've been there, done that. I lived for pleasure. And it was wonderful for a short time. And then the consequences of my actions, the price started catching me. And once I was stuck in that, I couldn't get out without Jesus. But the wonderful thing about the master is, the master even says to slaves in the church, say, masters in the church, listen to this, Colossians 4 verse 1. And he's telling earthly masters in the church who have slaves how to treat their slaves. He says, masters, provide your slaves what is right and fair. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So what God's teaching us here is he's teaching earthly masters, you're a slave. Look, look how I treat you. Now you treat your fellow slave. That same way. But what that tells us is provision comes from Him. Some of you, God's provided huge resources to you. Some of you are like, I was actually thinking about you guys. I don't know where you are, but I, 
I was just in worship praying, Lord, provide for these two. Provide. Provide. And I was actually thinking of my own life with them, so I'll show you this story just now. Provide. And in Matthew 6.33, the Bible says this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all this veralsechut, all the needs you have, will be given to you as well. If I prioritize his house, my master will look after my house. See, here's the thing. If you try and save your children, you'll lose your children. The principle of heaven. But if you lose your children for his name's sake, and I'm not saying neglect them. Love them as, as you call to as a good Christian. But if you, if you keep them in their priority, he will save your children. Seek his house, and he'll look up to us. And I was thinking that just stories that, you know, you don't know. But this is how we've lived. I remember when we got married, I mean, we speak about the tithe. And I, for me, our tithe was God's. And I remember when we first got married, we were both working, and we earned such a little salary that we couldn't afford, we actually couldn't afford to pay rent. But we were not, not going to tithe. So while we couldn't afford to pay rent, let alone food and stuff, we, what we did is this. We actually brought our tithes to the Lord, and then we didn't have enough money to, to, to rent even a house in a poor area. So what we did is we moved into a car in our early years of marriage. Combi. A bit bigger than a car. Not much. Combi. And we lived in the car in somebody's, in the garden of somebody in the church. Newlyweds. We were not, not going to tie. I remember then moving from there, and, and this is in the old apartheid days, and so you know, there were kind of white areas and kind of non-white areas, and it wasn't cool to live in a non-white area for anyone, and I couldn't afford, when we did get enough money, to live in a white area, early days of marriage. So we moved into a township, and I tithed. Then we led two people to the Lord, Nikki Carson, who's now an elder in Sunnydale, and a guy called Neil Lloyd, who'd got saved from peddling drugs on Table Mountain. And they had no work. So what we did was this. We loved one another. We had everything. So we, we had to move in with us, but we couldn't afford to pay our rent. Our house was so small. We lived in a Wendy house for a long time as well. But this house was so small that, um, man, I remember... It was like people literally lying in the kitchen floor and, and one lay on the lounge because it was, it was one bedroom, one bathroom, and it was miniature. And I remember paying our tithes and giving to God and having no money for food. Now I've got two dependents and a wife. My wife has got chronic kidney failure. We needed medical aid. You don't want to sit in government queues when your wife's dying of kidney failure. But God was our provision. So we couldn't afford medical aid. <laughs> and so we lived in this place of, God, if you don't keep us, that we're not, not going to be faithful with our money. <laughs> and then, we don't have enough money for food. And we prayed often. And often I'd come home and there would be packets at our front door. I don't know where they came from, full of food. And we would feast. God provided. I remember in that time not having enough money for food and going, God, I would love a Hobie cat, which is a little sailing boat. But I mean, I can't afford food. But I'm seeking a house first, Lord. Within a week, somebody gave me, without me asking, a Hobie cat. 
Our master not only provided for our needs, but he blessed us. And yes, we lived in a car. Yes, I lived in a wooden Wendy house, but we lived. And some of our best stories are from those times of, dear God, if you don't come through, if you don't come through. Because I'm an alien and a foreign alien. I say this because some of us, the financial situation is changing. Seek his house. Cut your cloth accordingly. And if you seek his house first, he promises to meet your needs. He promises. All right. One of the warnings, and I'm nearly done, in, in 2 Peter 2, verse 1 to 3. This is a warning about the end times church. And Peter's writing about what will happen to Christianity here. And he says, but just as there were false prophets among the people in the Old Testament, so there will be false teachers among you. So in other words, the end times church looking forward is going to have false teachers that will actually produce dangerous things. And they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Teachings are going to come into the church that will actually cause people to not live right or believe right. Even, and this is the, I love when he says even, so he's starting to give you the highlights. Here's the highlights of what end time bad doctrine is going to look like. First one, even denying the sovereign karyos, the sovereign master of the slaves who bought them, clearly slavery. Even denying the sovereign master's right to lord over his people, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Then many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. The primary false teaching in the end will make you think you're not a slave. It'll make you think you're a son and that the father just wants to bless you. It's all about you. And, and there's aspects of truth in that. But it's actually a destructive heresy. True Christianity is master. 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 Do you get that? How many of you see yourself, which side are you on? The sovereign Lord who bought them. Again, clearly slave talk. And so in Romans 10, 19, and I've got two more scriptures and we finish. Romans 10, 9 to 10. And this is, this is how you know when the Bible says something, we don't read it right. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is how, he, what the writers here are saying is, this is something that would be true salvation. To, to confess him, go back, for confess him with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart. And he actually goes on to say it's impossible to say that without the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because I can go to a Satanist, well, maybe a Satanist struggle, but I can go to a heathen down the road and say, say this, Jesus Christ is Lord. And even he might even believe. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe you live? Yeah, I do. Is he saved? No. It's impossible to say this properly without the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Because what you're saying is, Jesus is karyos. Jesus is master of my life. Absolute Lord of my life. And I am the master's slave. And I believe in my heart that he purchased me with blood. Died on a cross in my place. So I'm no longer my own. I belong to him. And to get that right is a work of the spirit of God, and it, and it is what it means to be saved. Hudson Taylor, you know who he was? The great missionary, and I'm, I'm nearly done, said this. He said, Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. 
Jesus Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Is he Lord of every part of your life? Is he Lord of your family? Is he Lord of your marriage? Is he Lord of your finances? Is he Lord of your career? Is he Lord of everything? Because if he isn't Lord of everything, then he's not your Lord. You, you're a servant. You're not a slave. I am not my own. And then the wonderful thing about our master is this. I was a slave to sin. But I was dying for what it was doing in me. But he loved me and he redeemed me. Died on a cross and he brought me into his family. And then the master says this to us in John 15, 14 to 15. And I love this. You're my friends. This is another aspect coming in now. You're my friends. If you do what I command, I often think that's quite funny. Can you imagine a friendship? Kevin, you're my friend. If you do what I command. <laughs> you get that? It's kind of not equal footing here. It's like, it's like you can be my friend, but just remember how this relationship works. And then he says, For I no longer call you slave, doulos. Because a slave does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. Because everything that I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. Here's the thing. The master redeems us as slaves. And our part posture is, I am your slave master. Because I do the things that you want. I belong to you. I'm not my own. I was bought at a price. And the master says to us, because you positioned yourself properly before me as king and lord of all creation, you've bowed your knee to me. Now, because of that, I'm going to come bring you close. And I'm going to call you my friend. And I'll reveal to you the mysteries of my father's heart. The foundation of being a friend of God is to be a slave of God. Are you his slave? And I'm going to finish, and I am finished with that. This doctrine is something that needs to come back to the Christian church. It's all over our Bible. And it is if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And if you believe properly in your heart and what he's done for you on the cross. Then you are adopted off the fields of slavery. You are bought and you're brought into the household of God. And you become a member of his household. And as you as a slave seek his kingdom first in all things. And you don't worry about your own things. You worry about his things. He says, I'll worry about your things. I'll look after you. But you seek my kingdom first. And so what I want to do is before I pray for the church. Is I actually want to pray for the, somebody here that maybe isn't yet part of the church. Not part of the household of God. And I would ask you. In closing this message. God says this about you and me. You're a slave. You're a slave to whatever masters you. You might think you're free, but slavery is a terrible thing and you're bound by it. And sin, living for yourself, doing the things you want to do, feels like it brings you freedom, but it doesn't. It binds you up and it ties you down and it destroys your marriages. It destroys your kids. It destroys the image of God in you. It destroys you. And God looks at you and he says he loves you. He loves you so much that he knew the only way to save you from what you're doing, the only price that could meet your freedom is his own life. And so God who created the universe 
comes to the earth, and we read in Philippians, lives as a slave, and then dies as a slave on a cross 2,000 years ago, paying the price for all who are bound in slavery. He died for the sin of the whole world. That whoever believes in him would not perish in their sin, but receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. The only way for you to come into his household is through his death. You will, and it means you have to believe in your heart and confess, you are my Lord. You are my Lord. I want to follow you. I want to belong to you. I don't want to live for me anymore. Save me, God, from myself. Save me from my bad choices. Save me from the mess of my life. I want to belong to you. And if you're there today and you've never done that, I do want to pray with you. Because in a moment, the one we're reading about and speaking about, who's alive and here right now, will come and draw you into his family. And he will give you life and an inheritance. And you will find in serving him that you truly live. So every head bowed, please, every eye closed. Is there anyone here today that you've never given your life to him? You're saying, Jesus, please, I need to be saved. Please, would you save me? Please, would you come into my life and rescue me? I, I don't want to live in sin. I don't want to live in slavery to these things anymore, to addictions and lusts and hatred and, and broken relationships. I don't want these things to rule me anymore. I want you to be my Lord. I want to come to you, God, and I want to say, forgive me. Thank you for paying the price for me and my failures, for becoming a slave and dying my death. I believe and I want to come in and become part of your family. And if you're there today, the Bible says he will wash you clean in a moment. And he'll seat you with him at his table. But you need to respond and say, yes, Lord. And if that is you, I want to ask with every head bowed, would you lift your hand just before the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. I want to belong to you. Is there anyone here today? Let me see where you are so I can pray with you. And introduce you to this God who loves you. And you died on a cross in your place. Okay, there is one hand. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? Just respond to him. Thank you. Thank you. For God so loved you. He saw you kicking and screaming in your own sin. Kicking and screaming on your own vomit and the mess that you've made. But he loved you. So much that he came to save you. So that in this moment, even as you believe and as you confess, he says, in a moment, I'll wash you clean. I'll destroy those things that have ruled you. And I'll bring you and seat you at my table. And I'll call you my beloved. Anyone else? Just respond. All right. What I want us to do, and I want us to come before this king, and I'm going to pray for them, and then I'm going to pray for the church. But I want to ask those that responded. I want everyone to stand. And I want to ask those that responded to come out. And I want to pray with you right up front here. As you come out, you effectively are saying, I'm coming to you, God, for freedom. I'm coming to you for life. I know some might, this might be a deeper commitment. But if you feel this is something, God, is, you've lifted your hand. Come stand out front with me and I'll pray with you. Come out. Sir. Come out. Those at the back. The number of folk that responded to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. This is amazing. You know, the Bible says that God rejoices. There's another lady at the back. They come out. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. It's freaking awesome, Ruth. 
Come there with some others. Come out and just stand up front. Father, Father, thank you. Thank you. Here's the amazing thing. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad, no matter the mess, God says, I paid in full on the cross. I paid in full on the cross. I paid the price to set you free, to deliver you, and to call you close and to seat you at my table. And even as you've confessed and standing in front is your confession, you need to know in this moment that he's here with you. He loves you and he's for you. And so I want to just lead you in a prayer. And it's really a prayer just in some ways it's talking to God and just acknowledging what's happening here and asking him to come in, to lead you, to be your king, your Lord, your friend. So why don't we all just pray this? I know most of us, are, all, of us all of us here are already Christians, but let's pray with these folk. Just say out with me before the Lord. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for living my way. Please forgive me. You are God. You are Lord. I'm here today to acknowledge that. Forgive me for what I've done. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place. Would you give me freedom today? And I come before you. And I bow my knee. And I say, Jesus, you're my Lord. Come into my life and lead me. My life is yours. In Jesus' name. Amen. Father, thank you for these that have responded. And I pray right now that you would come even as you promised to fill them with your presence. Thank you that you've reconciled them to yourself through the cross. That no matter what they've done, you declare them innocent and free of those things today. That Father, you've drawn them into your family and I ask, Spirit of God, that you'd come and you'd fill them with your very presence. That they would be filled with the fullness of God. That they would be reconciled to their Heavenly Father. And that from this day onward, they would hear your voice and bow their knee daily and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as they seek you and as they seek your house, Father, I pray you would mend the brokenness and fix the past and bring that new life that you promise because you love them, because you're their God. In Jesus' name. Guys are going to pray with you. I want to pray for the church now. Is he Lord of all? Is he Lord of all? What I want us to do is I want us to make him Lord of all. Jesus died on a cross that we would be reconciled to him by faith and that he would become the rightful king of our life. He's the creator. He's the Lord. He's God. And so what I want us to do is if you're a Christian and you realize, oh my goodness, I've still got a part of my life that I'm holding on to, I want to ask you to come and bring it to him and acknowledge that he's Lord of that aspect just in this moment, if you need to do this with the Lord, and you know there's some part that you're holding on to, He's either Lord of all, or He's not Lord at all. I'm going to ask you if that's you, and you're saying, God, there is something you're highlighting here. It might be my children, it might be my career, it might be my comfort, whatever it is. Lord, I'm yours. I'm laying it at your feet. I want to ask you to come out, and I want to pray with you up front. Come out now, if that's you.
come out. You know, ultimately, this is a decision we make. That's why the translators translated this bond servant. In a sense, you're coming out, you're saying, Lord, you are Lord. And I'm buying money, and I'm asking you to be the Lord of my whole life. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that you delight in this. And actually, your heart isn't to lord it over us. Your heart is to seat us at your table. And if we're faithful in these times and we learn as your slaves how to live with you, with you as our Lord, we promise that on that last day, if we endure in this, that we will rule and reign with you. Be seated with you in heavenly places. And that you will call us sons. And there we will receive the full rights of sons. So Father, would you come even upon each one? Just surrender. Just bring it to the Lord. Repentance is turning away from what you're doing and turning towards God. Father, would you come and be Lord? And I want to thank you that as they seek you first, as they seek your righteousness first, that you promise to meet their needs according to your riches and glory. Father, give them stories to tell of the miracle working of their Father, of their God, of their Lord. And Father, I pray that you would establish your rule and your reign across this community, that we would be joyful, happy slaves of the King. Because we know our master's good and kind and gentle. He gives us dignity and worth that we will never have anywhere else. But we will acknowledge you, Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. The Bible says that on the last day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Karios, master. We're doing that now, Lord. Father, I pray that you would take each life and each thing that's being surrendered and establish your rule and your reign. Father, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Father, I pray that even as they come by faith and yield these things, thank you for provision. Thank you that you will meet their needs. Thank you that you're a good master and they do not need to fear because you know how to meet the needs of those you love. Father, in Jesus' name.